Hello, this is Pastor Mo, Senior Pastor at First Baptist Church of Broussard. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to these messages. My hope is that this sermon will be a benefit to your spiritual growth and that you will prayerfully take to heart the contents of this week's message. I also encourage you to pull up the accompanying sermon notes and follow along as you listen. If you have any questions or would like to follow up after the sermon, feel free to contact me or our staff here at First Baptist Broussard. May God bless you as we begin this week's sermon. Well, walking with Jesus through the Gospel of John, and we continue with that. Uh, this series where we have been uh, going through the entire book of John, trying to get a true understanding of just who Jesus is, what he really said, what he really did, and what he really wants from us in the response to that. Well, today we are moving all the way to chapter 2. We finally get into chapter 2. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to chapter 2 and the Gospel of John, it's also in your bulletin. And then if you uh, have your smartphone, you can open it up and you'll be able to see uh, even the letters in red in there. So if you want to follow along with that, you're welcome to do that. Well, the, the message today is going to be entitled, Saving the Best for Last, with the subtitle, The Best is Yet to Come. <laughs> so I want to, today's message just to be real practical. We're just going to look at some takeaways. I don't know if you're familiar with the term takeaway, but in the dictionary it says, uh, any major point or points from a discussion or event. So the takeaways that we, I want you to take away with you today when you leave, uh, we want to start with uh, these things. Number one. Takeaway number one, Jesus wants to be involved in our everyday lives. Now, to those of us who have been longtime Christians, understand that and say, well, sure he does. But a lot of times we, we, we kind of take it for granted or we forget, you know, that Jesus is with us every second of every day. He wants to be involved in your choice between bacon or sausage. Well, maybe not quite that. He, both of them are good. I just take both. But... Um, but, you know, he wants to be involved in every aspect of your life. Your job, your relationships, your family, your hobbies, your activities. And we need to make sure, we need to understand that Jesus desires to be intricately involved in every aspect of your life. So let him be involved. Now, where do I get that from? Well, John 2, verse 1 and 2. Uh, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. But this is a wedding. Now, a wedding is an everyday event in that it happens every day. But it's just part of our life. You know, God, Jesus wants to be involved in every aspect, and that's what he, we find here. Now, on this, this idea of the third day, this just means the third day from the time they left Jordan, where they had baptized. Remember, John the Baptist had baptized Jesus, and he had raised up, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then John the Baptist said, Listen, John and Andrew, his two disciples, that's the Lamb of God. And so they left and went with him. Well, they took a journey. It's about a two-day journey from Jordan, where they were baptized, to Cana. Now, Cana is sort of like Youngsville is to Broussard. I mean, it's just, just right across the, the, the hill in a sense. So it's close by, but it's a good two days journey. So they traveled two days, spent the night, they woke up, and on the third day from that, it was party time. It was a wedding. And a wedding was a major, major event uh, in those days, and as it is even in today. 
But this just the, the, the key point that I want to remind you, this foundational idea is, are you inviting or are you acknowledging the presence of Jesus in your everyday life? Or do you wait for a problem to come up or for a Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night or some devotion time to feel the presence of Jesus? We have the privilege of 365, 24-7 presence of Jesus in our life. I want to challenge you. Take away today the idea that Jesus wants to be involved. So invite him in. Acknowledge him. And you'll find that some great and miraculous things can take place. Well, let's move on to the next one, takeaway. Jesus is, uh, well, it should be just, is available. I don't know where the and comes from. Uh, is available to bring our requests, our needs, and our concerns to. Let's look at this verse here. Now, this passage today has two fairly controversial topics and things. So we're going to address those today. We shouldn't be afraid of controversies or things that appear to be a little bit not uh, following the, the plan that we think. Don't, don't worry about that. It's just the problem is not with the scriptures. The problem is with us understanding and interpreting it completely. But I'm going to try to give you the, the best shot I can here today. John 2, 3. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. Now, today the message is not about wine and alcohol. Okay, I'm, uh, you know... Most all of you know my stance that I, I just feel it's best to just abstain totally. You know. But wine is mentioned here. And a lot of long, old-time Baptists have tried to say, oh, that was just Welch's grape juice that he made. It wasn't real wine. It was real wine. It was real wine. You know, I, I wish it hadn't have been, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it was. But so the case is, the, day, the, the issue is not about wine. So just kind of get that out of your system. Even though I did, where's Cheryl Verdugo? She gave me a, a little note this morning from the Baton Rouge newspaper. There you are. And there's a church in Florida called the Castle Brewery Community. And they started, it's like we have the nice little coffee bar out here. They have a nice little home beer brewery in the church. And after service, they go out there and, and imbibe. Now, I can pretty much guarantee that's not where we're going, okay? That's not where we're going. But let's get it out there. It's wine, okay? But we've got to think of wine as more than just the substance itself. Wine is a symbol. Throughout the Bible, it's a symbol of the joy and the presence of the Lord. And that whenever they had that joy, that, that joy. So in a sense, when he's saying they don't have any wine... It means, man, the party's gone. It's nothing to drink. It's, it's all the joy is gone. On a secondary level, I think you can add this as a metaphor to the spiritual condition of Israel. The joy, the wine of the joy, the presence of the Lord had gone out of their lives, spiritually as well as politically. So there was this whole situation. Now, another question is, why in the world was Jesus' mother worried about it to begin with? Well, Cana was right next to Nazareth, and you know how families live close together. Most historians say that it appears that this wedding was a family member of Mary, possibly one of her children, or the children of Joseph, whichever, however you want to look at that. 
But that the half-brothers of Jesus, it may have been one of those. So but the, the idea here is, is Mary was the wedding planner. She was in charge for whatever that meant. She was in charge. Now, I'm sure all of you who have been involved in weddings or parties or other things, you get a little concerned about, you know, the food and the beverage and everything being just right. You get a little antsy sometimes. Well, imagine you've invited everybody to come and you run out of wine. You run out of little, those little sandwiches or those little pedophores. You know, you run out. Man, that's, it's, it's, it's terrible. Now, we're being a little facetious, but really, it's, it's really rather uh, sad and disappointing when that happens if you're in charge. Because in a sense, it's what it's saying is, you didn't plan right. You didn't, you didn't do something right. You didn't provide enough. And I'm sure there are some people, maybe... Somebody else who was kind of interested, and I'm making this up here, but maybe somebody else was interested in the, the wife, and she said, man, that guy, he couldn't provide for you enough wine. I could have done better than that. You know, no, he didn't say that. But I'm just saying just the idea is that Mary was there. She, she was seriously intent on this issue. And Mary sets an example for us. She goes to Jesus with her concerns. And that's what we should do. Mary realized that she couldn't fix it. Now the other family members could fix it. She realized only Jesus had the answers. She sets the example of going to Jesus, realizing that it's only in Jesus not in the disciples, not in Joseph, not in Mary. None of those are equal to Jesus. All of those are, have fallen and have sinned. I think Mary is probably about as close to a godly woman as you'll ever find. The most blessed of women. But she was not Jesus. Amen. She was not equal to Jesus. Amen. But she was loved and respected and she is probably one of the best examples of how we should respond to Jesus. She came to him, and she simply said, we've run out of wine. So, one controversy down, the wine, just let it go. Don't worry about it. Don't, don't fret it. That's, we're, that's not the main issue here. This, the wine is not the issue. It's just a, a part of the, of the problem there. Number three. Jesus' will and purpose must always have priority in our lives. So number one, we need to invite Jesus into every aspect of our life. Uh, and then we need to bring our needs and our concerns to him. But when we do that, we need to realize that it's Jesus' will that's going to be done. Just because we pray, we ask, we beg, we conjole, we do everything right, we can't you know, we can't butter up Jesus enough to give us what we want. That's not the way it works. Jesus' will and his priority must take precedence, even above his mother, his family, his friends, those things. So let's take, this is number, uh, right here, another controversial uh, verse, John 2, 3. Dear woman, now in the video it says, Madam. And you know, I never really knew that 
madam, shorten, is where we get ma'am from. When we say ma'am, it's a shortened version of madam. But they use madam. Most versions just say woman. Just say woman. But I'm trying to be nice here. Dear woman. And I'll give you to explain why. But the Greek is only one word. Good night. And I'll talk about that a little bit. What has this concern to do with us? Now, it's how you phrase that. Woman, what's your problem? What are you bringing to me? Do you think that's how Jesus said it? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Hey, some versions do say mother here. But, you know, mother is not in there. If he wanted to say mother, he'd have said mother. So this term here, gunai, is what it is in Greek. Now, Jesus didn't say it in Greek. He said it in Aramaic. But the original author, John, who wrote this gospel, he spoke Aramaic, he spoke Greek, he, you know, he, he knew all those things. So he chose an equivalent word that would match the whole Old Testament and New Testament concept. He used that term gunai. And here we go right here, uh, the word gunai in Greek. May sound a little abrupt in some contexts, it was. It's just like the word love. You know, you can use the word love in a very negative sense. You know, someone says, I love evil or I love righteousness. Same word, but totally different context. Well, this word gunai is that way. Now, in the Old Testament, it's used about 19 times. And one of those times is the Old Testament character Caleb. You remember him? Joshua and Caleb were two of the leaders that had followed Moses out of Israel. And Caleb was one of the two of two of the twelve spies who had went out and that had to get a report and came back. And only he and Joshua had the good reports. So Caleb was, well, he was a, a very powerful and well influenced person. In Joshua, and, uh, I think it's Joshua 15, 18, that his daughter came to him and asked for some land. Now, that may not sound odd to you, but in those days, that was almost unheard of for a daughter to come address the dad to give her anything. It just wasn't a thing. Now, right or wrong, that's not the issue. It's just that was what it was. So Caleb's daughter walked up to her. And the scripture says, if you read the Old Testament, now of course he said it in Hebrew, but in the Greek Old Testament, he said, Gunai, and then he went on to say the next phrase, you know, what is this to you and me? But he was talking to his daughter, who was asking, and he came by and said, okay, yes, I'll give you the land. So that, it's a good issue. Now, let's take this word here and put yourself at the cross. You're standing in front of Jesus. He's on the cross to all the world. Seven times he makes utterances according to the different gospels. One of those times he said, Good night, woman, talking to his mother. Now, again, he didn't technically say the Greek word good night, but he said the equivalent Aramaic of that. So when he looked, Jesus looked off the cross, he looked at his mother, didn't call her mother. She says, good night, woman. This is your son. Son, this is your mother. This term has a little bit of an idea of, of t- 
tenderness, but also of a little distance. Imagine if I were a coach of a soccer team, uh, a 10, 12-year-old soccer team. Well, we only had one space left on the special team that was special elite team that we were going to go into. Just say my son or my daughter comes up and then another child comes up. And you know, I'm really not too fond of that parent. But I look and I talk to them and it's obvious that this child is far better experienced, more passionate, and more hard, and he's been to every single practice. My kid, as wonderful as he is, just falls a little bit short. But he's my kid, so what am I going to do? Am I going to pick him or am I going to pick the other child? Fairness, justice, and equity must choose the other, other child. There is a time in the, in that love, just because you love someone, doesn't mean that you do exactly what they want every time. Now, maybe after this, I'll say, hey, let's go, go out to eat. We're going to go to Chuck E. Cheese, and we're going to have some time. And I tell you what, we're going to start practicing every single day. And me and you, I'm going to spend time with you. And we're going to sharpen your skills. You're going to be there. You see, you see the idea here is that there's, you can love but still have a little distance. You can do some separation. Jesus, in a sense, is doing a little bit of separation between Mary and his family. Because in those days... Family was everything. You know, if mama said do this, you did it. You know, just like today in most southern families. You know, mama says this. Oh, yeah, mama, whatever mama says. And that's good in a sense. But Jesus is making a, a, a different play here. But let me just kind of show you this same term. How many of you have ever read any of Homer's work? Iliad Odyssey, some of you uh, in college and high school? He used that term Ganai when he addressed his wife, Penelope wasn't negative. Augustus the Caesar, the emperor, he addressed his dear Cleopatra by this term. And it has a similar context to the medieval term, my lady. You remember how the lords and the neighbors said, my lady. It's not a term of disrespect. It's one of respect in the right proper, but with some distance involved. And let's look at this next verse and see how that, that goes. Where well, he says, dear woman, what is this concern to do with us? That does sound like it could be a little rough. The actual Greek in the Hebrew context is what to you and what to me. That's the simple, literally what it means. Really, you have to read between the line and understand that Jesus, in a sense, was saying, what, what's the problem here? What's the concern? Why are you concerning yourself about this? He was just simply addressing the issue. But then he goes on to say, my hour, or in the video it says, my time has not yet come. Now most of us are familiar with a metaphorical, you know, the man of the hour, you know, whether it was Winston Churchill during the, uh, the World Wars or other people who have risen to time. The hour or the time is that which you have been created for or the height of importance in your life. Jesus' hour was his death, crucifixion, and resurrection. That's what he came for. That was his hour. So this verse, and you've got to read between the lines here, because John is just giving us a few details. 
But if we read between the line, if we understand the context here is <clears throat> of what, what Jesus is saying, is that he says, I care about you, but my time has not come. In essence, what he's saying is, the cross and my work for the Father is more important than anything else. And in essence, he was maybe saying to his mother, is turning this water into wine really necessary for me to set the pace to do what I need to do on the cross? Setting priorities. Remember last week I used the verse, Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all the other things be added unto you. We need to seek Jesus' will and purpose first, above our own preferences, above the preferences of our husband or wife, or mother, or father, or child, or worker, or boss. You still need to be considerate and loving and understanding. But Jesus must come first. His will comes first. Jesus was saying, I'm not here to do what you want me to do, mother. I'm here to do what my father has called me to do. That's the most important thing. My time has not yet come yet. But even in, with that being said, this is the context. Jesus goes about and does something. He does what he does. Jesus, number four, takeaway is Jesus will provide abundantly if we listen, if we trust, and if we obey. So Jesus wants to do something abundantly. Let's see how this verse teaches us those principles of abundance and, uh, and purity. John 2, 5 through 8. This is what Mary said. After she said, we ran out of wine. The woman, what's the concern? She didn't say anything else. She immediately went to the head servant and says, do whatever he says. See, Mary is exhibiting faith and trust. Jesus didn't tell her, oh yeah, I'll take care of it. He actually kind of said, you know, is this really the most important thing to do right now? But then he goes around and says, do whatever he tells you. Again, Mary setting the pace of what to do. She went to Jesus with the problems. She was with him in everyday life. And then she said, trust and obey. Just obey. Just do it. His mother told the servants. Now, six stoned water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Now, let's... Read behind the lines here in historical context. The number six, if you remember in the Bible, numbers have great importance. You know, like 40, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days there. Uh, Twelve was uh, a leadership team. Seven is the perfect number, the number of God. So what is six? One less than seven. It's the number for man. It's a symbol all through the Bible of man's effort in religious activity. There were six stone water jars for Jewish purification. You see, they washed their hands all the time for purification, and they thought they were doing it for a biblical reason. Now imagine this. You have two or three courses of a meal. The traditional Hebrew Jewish purification system was you went to one of these jars before you ate. You dipped your hands into it. You'd raise them up, let the water drip down, and then you would flush them down and do that, and you would eat. But you do that between every single course of the meal. 
And you would do that before you went into the synagogue or the temple. So this purification was really a symbol of man's attempt to try to purify himself outside of God in his own effort. Six of them. And they were using water that would do that. Now, the 20 or 30 gallons is there to kind of prove this point of abundance. Multiply, how many of you geniuses out there can multiply 20 by 6 or, uh, or 30 by 6? You're talking about about 120 to 150 gallons of wine. I don't know about you, unless, I don't know if even at Festival International, with all the people there, they could drink 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot. Now, maybe some of you have been to parties where you drink that much. Shame on you. But that, that, that was abundant. That was more than they needed. I mean, they could have served everybody in Nazareth and Cana and all the village more than once with 150 gallons of wine. See, what Jesus is saying here is, if you do whatever I tell you to do and not depend upon your human efforts to try to take care of things, then I'll provide for you. So, the mother said, do whatever he tells you. Then he said, fill the jars with water. So they questioned him and failed to do so. Is that what it says? No, it says, so they filled them to the brim. They didn't ask a question. Now, imagine this. You're the one that's responsible for bringing the the wine. You know that's water. And you tell them, oh, it's wine. And you say, oh, I don't know about this. They're going to look at you like you're crazy and that you fooled them. So these servants were taking a risk. Their reputation uh, was at risk. But they took the water, and I, I think that they actually dipped it, and it was water when they dipped it out. But when they got out there in obedience and poured it, it turned into wine. Now, whatever the time frame, we don't know. But they... Fill the jars with water. And then Jesus said, draw some and take it to the chief servant. And what does it say? And they did. This is what's called the Nike philosophy. Just do it. Okay, just do it. Do what God says to do. Do whatever he says. Do it exactly the way he says it. Don't question him. Don't try to put your priorities above him. Just do it. Do what he says. And they did. So they set the example. Mary set the example of how to involve herself with the life of Jesus, to ask him, bring concerns to him, to trust in him, to provide for that, and he does. So let's go to takeaway number five. This is where the sermon kind of comes in. Jesus saves the best for last. In John 2, 9 and 10, when the chief servant tasted the water. Now, remember, they dipped the water, they poured the cup, and the, this is a, the difficult guy who didn't know what was going on. This was the, the chief servant who was further over. He wasn't the one who had been involved in the water and the wine stuff. He had been off over here worried about what to do. They brought him and said, oh, we, got, we found something new. Poured it in there, take a, took a sip. Now, he didn't know where it came from, though the servants did. Then, he stood up, and he walked over to the groom. The groom and the bride were sitting there, and I'm sure they were sweat bullets, wondering, 
man, I, I sure hope we do something here. And the guy, the chief servant said, listen, everybody, I want to tell you something. I've been to lots of weddings. I'm talking about lots of weddings. And something here today has happened that never has happened before. And he wasn't talking about the water turning to wine. He was just talking about the fact. He says, most wedding parties bring out the best wine first while you're still reasonably uh, sensible. And you can taste it. And you drink it. You enjoy it. And then after you've kind of imbibed a good bit, you know, the second wine is brought out. It's just sort of the, you know, the, uh, the boot liquor that's at the end. You know, it's not that good. But you don't know because half the people are, are, are out of it anyway. But he says, no, no, no. It's only different. I thought the, that other wine was pretty good. But they saved the best for last. The finest wine till last. Now, of course, the groom was overwhelmed with himself and everybody was impressed. And man, that was, that was, that was, that was a good wedding. But the, the principle here is, and we apply that to us. Now, we have a lot of people who are getting along in age. And uh, I'm one of those. I hit 60 this year. And I'm starting to think I still got about 30 or 40 more. I got to go 102, I think, is what I'm, I'm claiming, uh, Lord will. But, you know, I'm starting to move on the other side a little bit. But, you know, and I look back at my life, and maybe you do too, and say, well, you know, is, is the best behind me? Is there, is there anything good ahead? Well, I think with Jesus, your best is yet to come. Amen. Your best is yet to come in him. Amen. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to have the best car and the money. I'm not into that kind of stuff. That's not who I am. You've never heard me say that. But the best of spiritual fellowship and warmth and love with God and with other Christians and a sense of peace, you know, that I am right with Jesus and life is good. Yeah, my bones ache. Yeah, my finances are dry. This job, I'm worried about this, but it's okay. Some of you are younger. You may be thinking, as I kind of sometimes wonder, and for my children and my granddaughter, hey there. Yeah. But what is going to, uh, yeah, Paul, Paul, that. But the idea of, of her growing up is, is she going to have the best? Because this generation is one of the few generations that there's no guarantee that they're going to make more or be better off than the previous generation. The economics and the situation, the climate, the anger, the hatred, Prejudice is worse than ever. Now, it was bad back in the 1800s and back in the 50s and 60s. It was bad. But it's prevalent all across every aspect in our society. But I want you to know, no matter how bad it gets, how broke or sick you get, no matter how bad the situation is, there's still joy. The wine of Jesus, that joy of Jesus can come through. Even in the midst of the storm, when you're aching, when you're hurting, when your spouse has left you, when your family has fallen apart, when your job has walked away, when you're uncertain about your future, Jesus is still there. And if you have been acknowledging him in his every aspect of your life, then you can bring your problems to him right away. You can trust him, and you can wait for his will to be done. And know that the best is, is coming.
and it'll be abundant. Now, Jesus said he's come to bring abundant life, but also eternal life. So, no matter how dark and bad it gets, if you're a Christian, man, heaven is going to be beyond belief. The best. So whatever you're going to go through in this life, no matter how difficult and no matter what, don't ever give up. Don't blame Jesus. Don't blame God. Just trust in him. And you're going to find yourself in abundance one day. And actually, every day can be that if we truly just give him our problems and trust in him and let him be the desire of our heart. If you're filled, think of your belly being filled with food or in this context filled with wine, but think of yourself, your spirit filled with Jesus. After you've eaten this morning, I ate the wonderful breakfast that Mr. Bob and them fixed. I was full. I, I, I didn't want anything else. I was full and satisfied. Didn't, need, didn't want interest in food at all. And if you're full of Jesus, then you don't need the material success of the world. You don't need the sexual deviations of this world or the uh, affirmation of people. Because you've got all you need. That's where we've got to be. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to get there necessarily. That's the potential if you will walk with Jesus every day. There's a poem. I don't know if many of you poems. I remember used to read poems a lot when I was in about the sixth grade. Me and one of my other buddies, I don't know where we got this from, but we would do a contest to see if we could learn a poem every day. Now, uh, you think about two Mississippi redneck country boys coming up with that idea. I don't know where that came from, but we had an English teacher that, well, she's actually kind of cute, but she, she motivated us highly. Okay, she motivated us highly to, to do this. So we would do a poem, and this is a poem that you may have heard before. It's actually entitled Rabbi Ben Ezra, written right in the midst of the Civil War. Robert Browning writes this. Grow old along with me, the best is yet to be. The best of life for which the first was made. Our times are in his hand. Who saith the whole I have planned? Youth shows but the half. Trust God and see all and do not be afraid. We realize how that's a biblical preaching point here from Robert Browning. Our times are in his hands. He decides what to do. God has a plan for all of us. In our youthfulness, we may think, well, a chop is this, but you've only seen half. So nobody, even if you're 80, 90 years old, you're only halfway there of the joy. Trust in God. Don't be afraid. The best is yet to be. God has great things for us. Trust in him and be faithful. Well, the last takeaway is just a very brief one. It's very simple to the point. Bottom line is that we must believe in Jesus. All this stuff about joy and life and dealing with victory and water to wine, all the kind of stuff, is just a good story if you don't believe it. You see, John the Apostle wrote this book, John, with the express purpose that you will know who Jesus is and what he did and believe and have life. Believe is the key. And that word believe, if you remember from my first couple of sermons I talked about, and if you've missed any of these, Adam has put most of these on our website. And uh, can you get them through the app too? 
the app, the sermons? Okay, sermons through the app or our website. You can go back and pick up some of these. But I talked about belief. It's not like, well, you know, uh, uh, I believe it's going to rain this afternoon. You know, that's not his. Or, or I believe E equals MC square. Well, it, it does, but, you know, I, I really don't worry about that. But if you believe, which means to trust, lean upon, place your full confidence upon, the idea of surrender and submission is involved here. If you come to that point with Jesus, you're going to have victory. Now, this is sort of our summary verse here, John 2, 11. <clears throat> Jesus performed this first sign. Now, we'll notice we didn't use the word miracle here because miracle is not a good word. Well, it's not a bad word. It's just not the fullest appropriate word. The miracle of turning water into wine, which that was a miracle, was insignificant in just the fact that you changed water to wine. Okay. Because Jesus gave sight to the blind, raised people from the dead. So water to wine is not really that big of a, of, of a deal. But even raising from by the dead is not that important. The importance of this is that it is a sign, that it points towards something, that it supports a point. And what it does is supports the fact that when Jesus did that, he was displaying the glory of God in him. It was the glory of God being proclaimed. So he was, in a sense, saying, I am God. I am the promised Messiah. So this sign was for the purpose of showing God's glory. The result was the disciples believed in him. Now, they had already put some trust in him already, or they wouldn't have been following him around. But obviously, right here, something changed. Something went a little deeper. Rather than just saying, yeah, I, you know, I, I believe he's the son of God. I believe this. But, oh, I believe enough that I'm going to commit my life to following him. I am going to trust without a shadow of doubt. This sign, along with all the others in the Bible, all the different uh, things in the Bible, are there to show the glory of Jesus, the glory of God in Jesus. Because he wants us to see his glory so that we can bow and worship and submit ourselves before him, trust in him, and realize he is God, the creator of all things. So I can trust him with my marriage, my finances, my health, my future. You see, we need a great God. And we have a great God. The point is, do you believe? Believe to the fact that you're willing to Risk it all, give it all, do whatever it takes, and trust in Him. God is wanting to do something new in your life and in our church. Sixty years we've been doing great things here. God wants to do new and fresh and even better things. Maybe a little different. Maybe not. But God, just like He changed that water into wine, is a symbol of human effort into God power, God's power. When you trust in him, as I said so many times before, the day is the first day of the rest of your life. Follow him, listen to him, obey him, and live for him. You see, Jesus has the power to change water and wine. We saw it. We know that. But the truly amazing thing is, Jesus has the power to transform your life, the life of your family, the life of the people out there in the world. That's what it's about. Forget the wine. Forget mother. Forget the family. It's about 
Jesus. Trusting in him. Depending upon him. And following through. This is Pastor Moak again. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this sermon. Maybe something you've heard of the message or read of the notes has challenged your thinking about your faith. If so, our staff is here to help in whatever way we can. Or if you would prefer, check out the Faith Life tab located on our homepage at www.fbcbroussard.com. There you can find answers about salvation, spiritual growth, and getting plugged into a local church. And don't forget to check out the other sermons in this series as well. May God bless you.